0: The New Testament reading for today is Galatians 3, 15 through 22. The Old Testament reading is Exodus 12, 29 through 51. Galatians 3, 15 through 22. Exodus 12, 29 through 51. Would you hear now the reading of God's most holy word? Galatians 3, 15. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, Does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void? For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. and look at verses 29 through 51, our sermon text for today. Exodus 12, 29. There we read, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and also bless me. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it, after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones." All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron... And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So far, the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. There are four parts to our text for today. In in verse 29, we find a very brief description of the outpouring of the tenth plague upon the Egyptians. In verses 30 through 32, we find a description of the initial reaction of the Egyptians. In verses 33 through 42, uh, we find a description of the beginning of the Hebrews' exodus from Egypt. And then finally, in verses 43 through 51, we find even more instructions concerning the ongoing observance of the Passover feast. And I say even more because we considered instructions for the observance of the Passover in 12, 1 through 28. And we find even more than this in verses 43 through 51. By now you are probably getting the impression that this event was a very big deal in Israel's history. This event, the outpouring of the tenth plague, which resulted in the death of the firstborns of Egypt, of of man and of cattle, along with the simultaneous shielding of the Hebrews was a very big moment in Israel's history, and understandably so. It was this plague, the tenth plague, that finally broke Pharaoh and the Egyptians, leading to the, rest, to the release of the Hebrews. And at the same time, it was the greatest demonstration of the favor that God had shown to the Hebrews. Both of these things happened simultaneously. A great act of judgment against the Egyptians to finally um, move Pharaoh and the rest of them to, to drive the Hebrews out. And it was also a demonstration of, of God's favor to the Hebrews. Yes, we have seen this before where the Lord distinguished between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. This has happened in other plagues too. For example, in the fourth plague there were flies throughout the land of Egypt, but God set apart the land of Goshen where his people dwelt so that no swarms of flies would be there, that all would know that he is the Lord in the midst of the earth. That was Exodus 8:22. But here a distinction was made between Israel and Egypt in a particularly significant way. The firstborns of Egypt were put to death, but the Hebrews were shielded by the Lord. The Lord passed over their homes. The Lord protected the Hebrews. All of the other plagues were very awesome, but this was exponentially more so. This event was a very big deal, for through it the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt to make them into a nation just as He had promised long before. And so it is no wonder then that so much space is devoted in the Exodus narrative to instructions for the ongoing observance of the Passover. It's really kind of a a strange portion of the book of Exodus. Here we have a very brief description concerning the outpouring of the tenth and final plague. Only one verse is devoted to, to the description of the outpouring of the tenth and final plague. Verse 29 But instructions for the perpetual observance of the Passover memorial surround this text. The Hebrews were to celebrate the Passover year after year from this day forward to remember how the Lord had delivered them. The firstborn of Egypt were put to death, but the Hebrews were shielded by the Lord. He passed over their homes and they were spared. And the Passover feast was to be a yearly holiday that prompted the Hebrews to remember this great act of deliverance. Only one verse devoted to the actual outpouring of the tenth plague, but we know what happened there because of everything that surrounds that description. But everything that surrounds that description is actually an instruction to the Hebrew people concerning the observance of this Passover feast and the Feast of Unleavened Bread which relates to it. So, let us consider our text for today in these four parts that I have already described to you. The first question that we must ask of our text is, what happened when the tenth plague was poured out? What happened? In verse 29, we read that at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. We know that it was the Lord Himself who executed this judgment For in chapter 11 verse 4 Moses issued this warning, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. So already this warning had been issued. The Lord Himself said, I will go out in the midst of Egypt to do this. And I do believe that this last plague must be viewed in light of the murder of the male Hebrew children that we learned about way back in Exodus chapter 1. You'll remember that story, I'm sure. The Egyptians were concerned that the Hebrews were growing too strong. And so Pharaoh commanded that the midwives put the male newborns to death. Uh, they would not cooperate, and so Pharaoh commanded that the midwives, excuse me, that the children be cast into to the Nile. Anyone had the authority to do that in those days. Moses' own life was threatened by this decree. But he was spared by the Lord through the actions of his faithful mother who, when she could hide him no longer, made a basket of reeds and sent him down the river. Pharaoh's daughter found him, had compassion on him, raised him in the palace. And here I am saying that this tenth plague, the death of the firstborns of Egypt, must be viewed against the backdrop of that history. Not to mention the many, many years of brutal oppression endured by the Hebrew slaves at the hands of the Egyptians. So, if anyone would dare to complain against God, saying this is unjust, that He would put the firstborns of Egypt to death, I think they should be reminded of this history. The Egyptians were brutal to the Hebrews, and the Lord judged them for it. Or to state it another way, the Egyptians were brutal to God's Son, Israel, and so the Lord did righteously judge the Egyptians by striking at their firstborns. Furthermore, attention should be drawn to the fact that it was the Lord who did this and not the Hebrews themselves. The Lord judged the Egyptians and it was right for Him to do so. He is the judge of all the earth. He has this right to execute judgments like this upon wicked people, upon wicked nations. If it were the Hebrews who rose up to kill the firstborns of Egypt, then they themselves would be just as guilty as the Egyptians were before. You see, they would be guilty of genocide, just as the Egyptians were guilty of genocide. They would be no better than the Egyptians. But it was the Lord who did this, and He has the right to do so. This reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 12, 19. He writes to Christians saying, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You and I are not to take vengeance on our enemies. It's not our place. We are to leave that to the Lord. And here we have a prime example of the Lord taking vengeance on the enemies of His people. He did it. And he was just and right to do so. You know, I think this principle has application for us today. Uh, There are many in our culture who are obsessed with the idea that the evils committed by past generations must be made right in the present. You hear about it all of of the time, don't you? Uh, Those whose ancestors were unjustly enslaved are to be compensated somehow, and those whose ancestors benefited in some way from that arrangement are to be punished. How you would go about sorting all of that out, I'm not entirely sure. It's really a mess when you consider this this idea that exists within our culture. Uh, But I would assume that some might point to this Exodus story as an illustration in support of the principle of restitution. Can you see how they would pick this story up and do that? They would say, look at how the Hebrews were mistreated uh, by the Egyptians, but here we have An example of restitution, they plunder the Egyptians and and look at how the Egyptians were punished uh, by the Lord for the sins of the past, you know, the sins of of the previous generation uh, or so some might reason. Yes, uh, we, we do see something like that going on here, but we must not overlook this very significant fact, this was the Lord's doing. This was the Lord's doing. It was the Lord Himself who passed through Egypt to execute this judgment upon the Egyptians. It was the Lord who poured out these plagues, moving the Egyptians to freely and willingly give silver, gold, and clothing to their Hebrew neighbors as they left. This was the Lord's doing. In other words, this was not... Human vengeance. That's not what we're considering here in the, next, the Exodus story. Human vengeance. This was not man-made restitution. The Hebrews did not steal from the Egyptians, saying, Now you must pay for the sins of your ancestors. Nor did they rise up against the Egyptians in revolt, saying, Do you remember when you put our children to death? Well, here you go. Vengeance. No, no. It's not what's happening here in the Exodus narrative. This is the Lord's doing. He took vengeance upon the Egyptians in a way that only He could. He is the only one who has the right to do this. He poured out His just judgment upon these wicked and oppressive people. This this idolatrous nation who had committed such atrocities against the Hebrew people and others for generations. The point I am trying to make is this. Human beings can only go so far with justice. Have you ever thought about that? Human beings can only go so far with justice. If we try to go too far with justice, it becomes unjust. How far can we take it? Well, at best, our courts of law are able to hold men accountable for crimes that they themselves have committed. If one man has personally harmed another, then restitution should be paid. But friends, we have a difficult time getting this right. Have you ever noticed how hard it is for us to get this right? You know, simple justice where one man does harm to another and figuring out proper restitution in a situation like that. We can't even get that right half the time, it seems. And so we must be careful here in trying to go too far with this issue of justice. Our ability to execute justice is very limited. Why? Because our knowledge is limited. Some things must simply be left to the Lord to sort out. That is what I am saying. He may sort things out a little bit in this life, as He did at the time of the Exodus. We see a clear demonstration of that here. But He will sort everything out thoroughly, And with perfect exactness on the last day. And you had better be found in Christ, friends, for none are innocent. Not even you, the oppressed, are innocent. And here is another cultural trend that we see today men and women, especially young men and women, love to think of themselves as oppressed. Have you noticed this trend? In fact, many young people will identify themselves with as many oppressed groups as possible so as to be the most oppressed and thus the most deserving of cultural respect and and privilege. But those who have bought into this lie, who view themselves as the self-righteous oppressed, are going to have a very rude awakening on the last day when they stand before God and see that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that none is righteous, no, not one. And it would be far better... For them to learn this lesson now, and to know that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, so that they might turn to Him for the forgiveness of sins. So back to our text. What happened when the tenth plague was poured out? The answer is, the Lord put the firstborn of Egypt to death of man and of cattle. When did this happen? When did this happen? The text says at midnight, which in the Hebrew simply means in the middle of the night. Uh, We know from the previous passage that this happened on the 14th day of the first month of the Hebrew lunar calendar, which is called Abib or Nisan. It was springtime. It was that time of year that you and I call April. And in what year did this happen? We would say, according to our way of counting time, in approximately 1450 B.C., so 1,450 years before the birth of Christ, approximately 3,500 years ago. Uh, This is ancient history that we are considering in the book of Exodus. So children, I want to quiz you just to see if you're listening. I should have told you I was going to do this ahead of time. I want to quiz you to see if you're listening. What happened when the 10th plague was poured out? What happened? Do any kids want to answer? You're saying, Pastor, you never do this. (laughs) I'm going to start doing it, I think. The answer, what happened when the 10th plague was poured out? The firstborn of Egypt died. What happened to the Hebrews? What happened to them when the 10th plague was poured out? Does anyone have an answer? What happened to the Hebrews? They were shielded, weren't they? They were passed over, shielded by the Lord and spared. And what was the sign that those in a household had faith in the Lord so that they were protected that night? What set the Hebrews apart and marked them off as those who had faith? Does anyone know? The blood of the Lamb spread over the doorposts of the home. How long ago did this happen? We would say about 3,500 years ago or 1,500 years, 1450 before Christ was born. And here's one more question that I will pause and allow you to answer. What festival or holiday were the people of Israel to observe to remember this moment throughout the Old Covenant? What festival or holiday were the people of Israel to observe to remember this moment throughout their history? Do any of the children know? Passover, Passover, right. They were to keep the Passover feast and also the Feast of Unleavened Bread which was associated with it. So that answers the question, what happened? Now let us consider this question, how did the Egyptians respond? First we see that the Egyptians mourned. Verse 30 says, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Can you imagine this? Uh, In these densely populated areas, uh, as the Lord uh, poured out this judgment upon the Egyptian people Uh, people began to uh, arise and they found someone in their home who had died and they began to mourn they began to cry and that woke up their neighbor who then checked and they found someone in their house dead and they began to cry and there would have been this great and awful sound of of mourning uh, throughout these densely populated areas throughout the land of Egypt I, I, I think it is right for us to say that this was a truly awful judgment it was an awful judgment, and, and and to acknowledge that it was awful does not mean that it was unjust, only that it is something that should move us to awe and indeed, all of god 's judgments are are awful. The thought of the last judgment is it not an awful thought to think of men standing before God in their sins and being cast into eternal torment on the last day. It, it is an awful thought, but it does not mean that it is unjust. It is perfectly right what the Lord has done. God does not do wrong but right. When he judges sinners in their sin, secondly, the Egyptians demanded that the Hebrews leave and that they were now permitted to take their livestock too. This was a point of negotiation beforehand. you know Pharaoh would say, "Well, you can go, just the males, a little ways to worship, but you must come back. you know we're going to keep the, the women and the children, the livestock must stay stay And Moses went back and forth with Pharaoh. Now uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians they say, you you can go, in fact you you must go take your livestock with you that is what we see in verse 31 then he Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said up go out from among my people both you and the people of Israel and go serve the Lord as you have said now this does not contradict what was said before about Moses never seeing Pharaoh's face again it is likely that this command to leave was issued uh, not in a direct way Pharaoh to Moses face to face but by his servants thirdly Pharaoh requested that Moses bless him also. Did you catch that in the text? An interesting little piece here. Pharaoh requested that Moses bless him also. In fact, it's the last thing that Pharaoh says to Moses, uh, through his servants most likely. Bless me also. And I find this very interesting. Um, I do not think that this means Pharaoh came to have true and saving faith. In fact, we will see that Pharaoh will change his mind one more time and pursue the Hebrews to destroy them in the wilderness before the Red Sea. But I do believe that he was thoroughly convinced by these great acts of judgment that the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, was to be feared. This little request from Pharaoh, and bless me also, is meant to remind us of Israel's purpose from the beginning. Do you remember what God said to Abraham when he called him hundreds of years before this event took place? This is what the Lord said to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing... I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This little request from Pharaoh is meant to remind us of the fact that Israel was made into a nation in the days of Moses in order to bless the nations. Pharaoh would not get this blessing, for he persisted in unbelief. But there is something prophetic about this request. That is what I am saying. As Israel leaves to become a nation in fulfillment to the promises made previously to Abraham, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, said, Bless me also. And indeed, Egypt would be blessed by Israel, not right away, but in the fullness of time when the Messiah would come to die, not for the Hebrews only, but also for the nations. Do you see how this little request of Pharaoh's is is therefore to be seen as prophetic and forward-looking? Also, it's meant to remind us of what previously was said to Abraham, according to the promises of God. Now, verses 33-41 through 41 describe the beginning of the Hebrews' exodus from Egypt. The Egyptians sent them away very quickly, reasoning that if they did not, they would all soon be dead. You can understand why they would think this. Never did the Lord threaten such a thing. In His mercy, His judgments against the Egyptians were restrained to the firstborns, but you could understand why the Egyptians felt this way. They assumed if this people stays any longer in our midst, we're all going to be dead, and so they sent Israel away with haste. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. Exodus twelve thirty four says they, they were going on a long journey and they would need food to eat at the beginning, and so they took unleavened bread just as the Lord had commanded. In verses 34 through 36, we hear that the Hebrews were sent away with silver, gold, and clothing from the Egyptians. Again, they did not steal it, but asked for it, as Moses had commanded. And the Lord gave the Hebrews favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and so they went out with great possessions. In verses 37 through 40, we read, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides the women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough and they had, that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. This is a very interesting little passage here, Exodus 12:37 through 40. And I need to make a few remarks about it. One, you should know that there are differences of opinion regarding the number of people who went out from Egypt. The ESV says 600,000 men, which would put the total number at well over a million, perhaps close to two million, including women and children. Can you imagine a multitude that large? It's a massive group of people. But some scholars note that the Hebrew word translated as thousand here can also be used to refer to a clan or a military unit. And so they argue that the text does not say 600,000 men, but rather 600 clans or units of men, as in military units. This would put the total number of men in the tens of thousands rather than the hundreds of thousands. And may I confess to you that I'm not entirely sure what to think about this. Is that okay that I say so from time to time? I need to study this issue further but I still lean rather strongly in the direction of understanding the text to mean 600,000 men for that seems to fit best with the numbers that are given later in Exodus 38:26 and Numbers 146, 232, 1121 and 2651. I mention this to you so that you might know that this is in fact a point of debate. Two, whatever the number The people of Israel are spoken of in military terms. In verse 51, we read, And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. By their hosts. This echoes what was said in 1217. And hosts is probably a military term. And so, Israel is to be viewed as an army, as an army of the Lord. This will become very significant as, ex, as the Exodus story progresses. Israel will be called to fight and to conquer nations, as you know. Three, here in verse 38, we learn that Israel was not a homogenous group at the beginning, but that a mixed multitude went out from Egypt. The majority of them were no doubt Hebrews. That is to say, they were physical descendants of Abraham, but other ethnicities also joined themselves to the Hebrews. How many were Egyptians? We don't know. Uh, perhaps some Egyptians witnessed the plagues and came to fear the Lord and even believed in the Lord um, and decided to join themselves uh, to, to the Hebrews. They, they took this opportunity to leave. Uh, but other ethnic groups joined the Hebrews as well. They were probably enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptians also and took the opportunity uh, to leave Egypt. This was a mixed multitude and and this will help us to understand the trouble that Israel would have with idolatry in the wilderness. Uh, The Hebrews were not uh, pure in their beliefs and practices themselves but they were also influenced by others too out in the wilderness. A mixed multitude went out of Egypt. Um, And so, in some respects, they took Egypt with them. Uh, They probably also took other cultures with them as they went out from Egypt into uh, the wilderness. I, I think that this was a mixed multitude helps us to see that this whole thing was not ultimately about race, but faith from the beginning. Though God would deal with the Hebrews in a special way for a time, foreigners could join themselves to Israel by faith. This principle would of course explode when the Messiah came and the new covenant was inaugurated for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This whole thing was not so much about race from the beginning as it was faith. Even under the old covenant, foreigners could join themselves to to Israel by faith. Four, we see that unleavened bread is mentioned here yet again. And I think this is to further emphasize the feast of unleavened bread that the Israelites were to observe in connection with the Passover. And then five, the text says that Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. The question we must ask is, When did the clock start? When did the clock start? Did the clock start when Jacob left Canaan with his family to settle in Egypt in the days when his son Joseph ruled there? Do you remember that whole story? Famine in the land. Joseph was already in Egypt because he had been sold by his own brothers. He was now a ruler there. Jacob finally tapped out. He said, we can't survive here any longer. We must go. And so they went down into Egypt and there they settled. Is that when the clock started on the 430 years, or did the clock start at an earlier time? In fact, there is very good reason to believe that the clock started at an earlier time. Will you follow along with me for just a moment as I sort this out with you? Israel lived in Egypt 430 years. From when? When did the clock start? And I am saying that it did not start with Jacob, but long before that. Consider a few things. 1 When Paul the apostle speaks of this 430 year period of time did you hear him speak of it in that Galatians text that we wrote that we read when Paul the apostle speaks of this 430 year period of time he marks the beginning of it with the call of Abram and the promise that was made to him as recorded in Genesis 12 This is found in the Galatians 3 passage that we've already read. There Paul says, "...to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void." So, track along with me here. The promise that Paul refers to here is the promise that was made to Abraham as recorded in Genesis 12. That marks the beginning of the 430 years, according to Paul. And what marks the end of the 430 years except the giving of the law of Moses? That's what Paul's referring to here in Galatians 3. Begins with the call of Abraham and the promises made to him. 430 years ends with the giving of the law of Moses. Paul's argument in Galatians is that the law of Moses, that was given much later, does does not nullify the promises previously made to Abraham. The law was added. We talked about that last Sunday, didn't we? The law, the law of Moses was, was added. Positive laws were added to the promises previously made to Abraham, and they were added in order to magnify sin. Think they were added for other reasons too and, and to preserve that people until the Christ could come into uh, the, the world. Paul argues in this way to demonstrate that salvation was never found in the keeping of the law of Moses. The law of Moses, these positive laws that were imposed upon Israel after the Exodus, could not bring salvation, could not bring the forgiveness of sins. Salvation has always been according to the promises given and faith in those promises. That's Paul's argument here in the passage, this is what he is arguing, but here's what I'm trying to show you. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that the 430 years began not with Jacob's entry into Egypt, but with Abraham's call and the promises made to him. Two, in Acts 7, we find that sermon that Stephen, uh, one of the first deacons uh, that Stephen preached. And he has this to say regarding the affliction of Abraham's descendants. And God spoke to this effect that Abraham's offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. So Paul says 430 years and Stephen says 400 years. This has troubled students of the Bible. Why? Why the different numbers? Paul says 430, Stephen says 400. Some assume that Stephen was simply rounding down, but this is not the case. In fact, Stephen in his sermon was referring to that passage in Genesis 15 where God cut the covenant with Abraham. Do you remember that text? Abraham saw a vision of divided animals and the Lord walked between them being symbolized by a smoking fire pot. You remember that from our study of Genesis. That's the passage that Stephen is alluding to when he preaches. And he says that it was 400 years from that episode until the Hebrew people were freed from their bondage. It is dated from from that passage in Acts chapter 7. Here is what that passage, Genesis 15, 13 says. God spoke to Abraham there, saying, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted 400 years. Do you know how a lot of, notice how a lot of things are mentioned there? Your your offspring, Abraham, in this vision, the Lord says to him, your offspring are going to be sojourners in a land that's not their own. And, They're going to experience affliction, and in fact, they're going to become servants. And then he says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Stephen, in his sermon, says it was 400 years from that moment when Abraham saw that vision of the divided animal carcasses and the freedom of the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage. So it is clear from these texts that Israel left Egypt 430 years after God first called Abraham and promised to bless him and to bless the nations in him. And it was 400 years after he walked through the divided animals before Abraham to affirm his promises regarding many descendants. Three, I said you'd have to be patient with me as I develop this, right? Three, it is interesting that the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, renders Exodus 1240, which we are now considering, in this way. Listen to the way that the Septuagint puts it. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt and in Canaan was 430 years. Did you hear that? The Septuagint translates the Hebrew in this way, saying, The time that the people lived in Egypt, and it adds, And in Canaan was 430 years. So the Septuagint wants us to know that this is the meaning of the text. The 430 years did not begin when Jacob came down into Egypt. It began when Abraham was first called. So it's to include that whole era where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sojourned in Canaan. That's when the clock started. The call of Abraham, the Time of sojourning in Canaan, also the time in Egypt when the Hebrews actually flourished there at first and then eventually came to be afflicted by the Egyptians and found themselves in bondage. It was 430 years from the call of Abraham that the people of Israel were released from Egyptian bondage. And this agrees perfectly with what Paul and Stephen says in Galatians 3 in Acts 7. So, what's going on here? I think it is this, the Hebrew word translated in the ESV as lived in Exodus 12.40 can mean other things. For example, it can mean endured. And indeed the descendants of Abraham did live or endure in Egypt for 430 years from the time that Abraham was called and 400 years from when he saw that vision. You understand what I'm saying here? Um, Abraham was called And Abraham saw that vision in Genesis 15. But what was he told? You will not have a land of your own until all of this happens. You you know, you've been called to leave your homeland and to follow me here to Canaan, but you will not come back to this land to have it as your own until you sojourn here for a while. And until you go down into another nation, and until you are afflicted and enslaved there, all of that must happen before you, your descendants, come back to possess this land. So in that sense, the Hebrews endured and were afflicted by Egypt for 430 years. That loomed over them. That, that, that loomed large in, in, their, in their thinking until that day when Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt to sojourn back towards Canaan. I think that's the meaning. It's important that I deal with this stuff with you, isn't it? I, I think it is. Um, because these questions, these are the kind of questions when you send your children off to the university that the really leftist professors like to throw in their face and say, do you see the Bible's filled with inaccuracies and contradictions? Uh, Stephen says 400. Right, Paul says 4.30, none of it really adds up or makes any sense. Your scriptures, which you consider to be the authority for truth, they're all flawed, you see. This is the kind of thing that these, these leftist types, uh, these atheists and these agnostics, the, the skeptics, that's what they do in order to undermine the faith of God's people. But these apparent contradictions are not contradictions they, they, at all. They, we just have to handle the, the scriptures carefully to see what they are saying and what they are uh, not saying. That's why I've taken the time to work through all of this with you. I'll move very quickly through the last portion of our text for today. In verses 43 through 49, more instructions are given concerning the observance of the Passover festival. I want you to consider how much emphasis is placed on the observance of the Passover Verses 1-28 through 28 of chapter 12 provide instructions for the observance of the yearly Passover. A very small portion of the text describes the 10th plague, the preservation of the Hebrews, and the beginning of the Exodus. And then in verse 43-49 through 49 we find more instructions for the observance of the Passover. In fact, these instructions continue all the way through 1316 as the Lord gives further instructions for the consecration of the firstborns of the Hebrews and the observance of the Feast. Of unleavened bread. You know, as you read all of this, you really do start to get the impression that God rescued these people from Egyptian bondage for religious purposes. Don't you get that sense? All sorts of instructions regarding uh, these holy days, these religious festivals. That is the point. These people, the Hebrew people, along with those who decided to join themselves to them, they were redeemed to worship and serve the Lord. They were redeemed to be a holy people. They were redeemed to bring the Messiah into the world and to bless the nations in Him. This point will come to the forefront as we progress through Exodus, and especially as we consider the rest of the Pentateuch. And here it begins, "...keep the Passover." Keep the Passover, keep the Passover, keep the religious festival as a reminder of what the Lord has done for you, as a reminder of of who you are. If there's anything unique about these instructions for keeping the Passover, found in verses 43 through 49, it is that the Passover is to be kept by Israel and not by the nations. So you see that these laws were added, these positive laws were added in the days of Moses to Israel in order to mark them off as a holy people, a peculiar people, a special people, a people of God's own unique possession. You see, this festival would mark Israel off as holy. And so it is with baptism and the Lord's Supper today. These are all sacraments which signify that those who partake are the Lord's special possession. And perhaps you noticed in this passage that it was not just ethnic Hebrews who were invited to keep the Passover. No, we see here that foreigners could observe it too. Foreigners could observe it too. They were welcome to come and to keep the Passover, but what did they have to do in order to keep it? The males of them had to be circumcised. They had to join themselves to Israel. And why would they do it if they did not have faith? What would compel them to join themselves to Israel except Faith, And so, foreigners could observe the Passover too, provided that they join themselves to Israel by faith. Verse 48, if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. This festival was to be observed by Israel. Not the nations. So this people, right here, right now, is being set apart by the Lord as a holy nation. And they will exist in the world as such until the Messiah is brought into the world. That was their purpose. Let me bring this sermon to a conclusion with three very brief suggestions for application. The first has to do with knowledge and Bible reading. The first has to do with knowledge and Bible reading. When you read the Scriptures, you need to be aware of where you are in the history of redemption with respect to God's covenantal dealings, lest you get lost and disoriented. This is very important. I'm trying to to demonstrate this to you as I'm preaching. We, We need to be mindful of where we are in the history of redemption And in respect to God's covenantal dealings as we read a particular passage of Scripture or else we will find ourselves lost and disoriented. To state things succinctly, things were different for Adam before the fall than they were for him afterwards. You understand that right? So that some things that are described to us in the early chapters of Genesis, they don't quite apply to us in the same way. Things were different for Adam before the fall then, for him afterwards. And things were different from the call of Abraham than they were for Moses and the Israelites from the Exodus onward. And things are different for those of us who live after the resurrection of Christ. And what makes the difference? What what is the what's happening that that makes the difference? Um, the, the answer is covenants. The covenants that God has entered into with man make the difference. Covenants establish the terms of man's relationship with God. And when you read the scriptures, you need to know where you are in relation to the history of redemption and the covenants. Many errors have been made theologically because of confusion on this point. And so I am saying to you, kids and adults, learn your history. Learn the history of the story of scripture. Learn the history of redemption. Memorize some dates, even, Even if you only do so roughly, memorize some dates, learn about these individuals that we find in the Scriptures and consider the covenants that God has transacted with them. It will be a great help to you in understanding our faith. Secondly, learn to see Christ as the fulfillment of these Old Testament events and institutions. This is what Christ taught His disciples to do. After His resurrection, He met with them and said, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That is Luke 24, 44. And you know that in that passage, Jesus was meeting with His disciples after He was raised from the dead. And He's teaching them to see Him, Christ, in the Old Testament Scriptures. We must learn to do the same thing. In fact... All of Paul's teaching was centered around the principle that Christ was mysteriously revealed in the Old Testament through prophecies, promises, types, and shadows. Christ, Christ says, I've been given marvelous insights into the mysteries of Christ. His, all of his teaching was really rooted in this, that Christ was revealed ahead of time in the Old Testament. We must learn to read the Old Testament in the same way, for it is the way that it was meant to be read. And as we see Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures, we may come... To love, appreciate, and cherish Him all the more. That is is my prayer. So we need to know where we are in the Scriptures. Why aren't we to observe the Passover? Because we're not living under the Old Covenant, brothers and sisters. We're not living under Moses. We are in Christ and the New Covenant has come. But what does the Passover have to do with Christ? A lot. For Christ is there pictured in the Passover. Hebrews were spared when the blood of the Lamb was bread upon the doorposts of their homes. But we are spared from the eternal wrath of God as the blood of the Lamb is applied to us and received by faith. You see, the Passover has everything to do with Christ. Thirdly and lastly, let us not forget that just as Israel was redeemed to worship, so too were we. I've made this point over and over again and I will continue to do so throughout our study of the book of Exodus. We were redeemed to worship. Israel was to faithfully keep the Passover from the Exodus onward. They often failed But may we be found faithful to keep the festival that the Messiah has given to us free from evil and insincerity and truth. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed for sins and for our eternal redemption. The festival that I am here referring to is the Lord's Supper. May we assemble here each Lord's Day to partake of the Lord's Supper that has been set before us. And may we do so with faith in our hearts in sincerity. And in truth, Let's bow together for prayer. Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Holy Word. We thank You for how You are revealed in it. We thank You for how Christ is revealed. And we know that Christ has accomplished our salvation and that we are forgiven in Him. So help us to see Him clearly in the Old Testament and the New. Help us to believe that He is indeed the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to you except through Him. And give us this gift of faith. For those who do not yet have faith, I pray that you would draw them to faith in the Messiah. That they would see Him as their Savior. That they would bow the knee before Him and call Him Lord. And for those who do have faith, I pray that you would strengthen it all the more so. Purify us, O Lord. We know that you have redeemed us to worship. We know that you have set us apart to walk with you in this world as a holy people. And so, help us to be holy as you are holy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.